You're listening to Switched On Australia, the podcast that tracks the opportunities and challenges of electrifying everything, everywhere. Switched On is brought to you by the publishers of Renew Economy, Australia's best informed, most read website focusing on the green energy transition and is supported by Boundless Earth, using philanthropy, investment and direct advocacy to help Australia become a global force in a decarbonised world. Hello and welcome to Switched On Australia. Thanks for joining me. I'm Anne Delaney. And I'd like to start today by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you from the lands of the Iraqwal people from the Bunjalung Nation in northern New South Wales. This is a country that was never ceded. Over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of focus on how we transform Australia's energy supply, how we decarbonise the grid. And it's probably fair to say there's been far less focus on how we use energy and whether we use it efficiently. With delays now in getting some of the big renewable energy projects off the ground to decarbonise the grid, some energy experts are advocating households and businesses can and should do more of the heavy lifting to get us to net zero. And we've already shown in Australia how individual actions can make a big difference. We have the highest uptake of rooftop solar in the world. So should we all just be trying to whack on more rooftop solar and install as many batteries as we can? Or should we be looking at what we can do to use our energy more efficiently so we don't need to install as much energy infrastructure, either at home or to expand the grid? Someone who has spent a lot of time looking at these questions is Rob Murray-Leach, the Head of Market Transformation at the Energy Efficiency Council, and he's my guest today. I thought I'd start my discussion, though, with Rob by getting him to spell out exactly what energy efficiency for our homes entails. Generally, it's a home that is really comfortable all year round without too much energy input. Uh, And it's almost more useful to kind of think in those really basic terms and to bring it back to what are we trying to achieve? You know, people don't eat electrons. Um, What they want is, you know, homes that are warm in winter, cool in summer, and they've got hot water coming out of the tap whenever they want it. And so it includes things like insulation, draft proofing, and efficient appliances, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. All of those. Yeah. Uh, the International Energy Agency has recommended Australia needs to improve our energy productivity, and we need to take massive steps to retrofit Australian homes and to rate the efficiency of our homes. Uh, And your own report that you've fairly recently written for the Energy Efficiency Council has said that the the shift to clean energy and the electrification of everything is going to be slow and expensive if we don't electrify efficiently. Why is energy efficiency so important for this transition? So historically, energy efficiency has been 95% roughly of, of greenhouse gas reduction in the energy space. So, you know, I've heard some people sort of say, well, have we done enough on it? No, we absolutely haven't. But so far, it's done the heavy lifting. As we start to get more renewables into the system, and that's starting to happen now, renewables start to play a much, much bigger role in reducing emissions in Australia. And the role of energy efficiency shifts quite a lot from sort of being, I guess, the mainstay of emissions reduction to something that, yep, it's still going to reduce emissions a lot in the next 10, 15 years, Um, but it moves into a support role of enabling us to get to renewables faster and cheaper. 
And I can sort of dig into that in a little bit more detail. If you think about your home and you've got solar on the roof, I'm assuming, um, is, is that right, Anne? That's correct. Yeah, no, you, can, you can make that assumption. <laughs> yeah, wild guess. Um, if you've got solar and it's producing tons of energy in the middle of the day, but not much at night, and even more significantly, particularly if you're somewhere like Melbourne, uh, Canberra, uh, Adelaide or uh, um, Tasmania, your production in winter is dramatically lower. Mm. So like in Victoria, it's about half as much comes off your roof in winter as it does in summer. But the problem is as we electrify our energy systems, which we need to, we need to have renewable electricity and electrification. We can't be using gas anymore. The problem is that if you're heating a home in, in Melbourne, um, it's going to be using a ton of energy in winter and actually not very much energy in summer. So if you want to size your solar system to be meeting your energy needs, but you have a really inefficient leaky home, you're going to be losing a ton of heat out the walls and the ceiling uh, of your uninsulated leaky home, um, which means that you are going to need to draw a lot of energy from the grid at times when there isn't lots of renewables in there. So you're going to be using the last remaining bits of coal and gas-fired generation on the grid. It also means we have to keep those operating for much longer. So reducing energy at the times when we're not producing a lot of energy from renewable sources uh, is the best complement we can have to really getting to renewables further and faster. So, the, I mean, that, that potentially, if, if we don't do this, we'll have to hang on to the grid, as you said, with the, with the fossil fuel actually still firing up. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, the, to get to enough energy that we need for winter, what we'd end up having to do is really invest a lot more in renewables um, than we need to. So we're massively overproducing in summer to make sure we're producing enough in winter. Um, you need to put a ton of money into batteries. And of course, that just delays because any extra time, any extra stuff you have to build between now and, say, 2035, um, means you're you're taking longer to build that which means you're running your gas your coal for longer so for individual householders who who want to do things as energy efficiently as possible do, do you have a rule of thumb about how they should calculate how much solar to install what you actually do is you don't look at your annual use you kind of say how much would i need for a rubbish july day is, mm. is normally how you kind of determine it so you kind of go the average week in july how much do i want you kind of work at it that way. In my case, it's about 10 kilowatt hours a day. It's really not very much. Um, and if you add on EVs, I mean, one of the interesting things with EVs is actually how much do you need to charge the EV? And the answer is probably not very much. Like they're so energy efficient. They actually don't draw a huge amount of power from the grid. Um, and if you are going to be sort of doing a you know massive charge up of your car after doing like, say, a long trip, as opposed to using a, you know, uh, you know, a public charger, you're actually not going to be, you know, you tend to going to be doing it once a week or so, something like that. So I think there is a risk that people overinvest. It doesn't matter too much because having a bit of extra panels is not a massive problem. Um, but mm. in particular, making sure you're getting the right amount of batteries that you need, uh, it's really useful to think about your needs first. So um, the answer is I should probably do this exercise of actually giving people some advice on uh, how much energy the average home is going to need per household because how much most households need at the moment is is based on very poor building stock, um, using gas heaters mm. and really inefficient appliances. And actually, really, most of us need an absolute fraction of the amount of energy 
because um, the great thing is if you build your home better uh, or you, you renovate your home, you do the draft proofing and insulation, not only is it cheaper to run and uses a lot less energy, but fundamentally it's just a much more comfortable home. So I almost sort of think of it the other way around now, which is design a home to make sure that it's going to be comfortable no matter what your, your heating system is and then work out how much energy you're going to need to do that. So sort of come at, come at it from the perspective of I want to make sure that um, I'm comfortable because there is a bit of an idea that like, well, I can just put more energy into the home to make it um, more comfortable, even if it's leaky and terrible. And the answer is unfortunately not because most uh, reverse mm. cycle systems, if the home doesn't have a reasonable level of insulation and draft proofing, it's going to be very blowy, very uncomfortable. And actually it's going to go through these cycles once every hour or two where it gets quite cold um, because the systems need to recalibrate basically uh, every couple of years. Uh, of ours, they basically have a defrost cycle in the in the coldest periods of, of winter. Mm. So I kind of almost think of it as start with making your home comfortable and think about the energy needs. Um, but as I said, you know, if you've got a reasonable rule of thumb, it doesn't matter if you produce a little bit of extra solar, but you definitely don't want to be buying tons of batteries that you don't need. It is going to take something of a, a, a revolution in the way we think of our homes in Australia because, uh, I mean, a lot of Australians want to live in big houses which need a lot of energy to heat and cool. And as you said, some people are putting on really big solar arrays, 30k, you know, kilowatts to supply en energy for all of their new electrical needs, which they're anticipating in the future, including their electric vehicles. How do we... How do we change that mindset? Yeah, look, again, I'm not super fussed with people, you know, building more solar than they need. Like having, uh, I think it's the, the, the rule of thumb for the future is that um, there is no renewable energy system where you're not overproducing energy for parts of the year, right? Like that's, that's how you make sure you've got enough energy all the time. So a little bit of excess is not a, a massive problem. But yeah, I think what you're, you're emphasizing is, is for me, almost again, I would, I would start with a really simple thing, which is, everybody deserves a comfortable, healthy home. Mm. Right? And I think that's the thing that's quite startling for people who've lived abroad or come from abroad to Australia and then they live somewhere like, you know, even Melbourne or Sydney, you know, not, not wildly cold cities uh, or Adelaide. And you spend your first winter and they're like, oh, my God, this is miserable. Like, this is a common story we hear from people from, you know, a friend of um, Who's who's uh, Canadian came over and they were they got heads up from their other Canadian friends who'd lived in Australia, uh, warning this will be the coldest winter you've ever lived. Now, bearing in mind that Canada gets to minus forty in parts of it, you know the fact that you know you move into a city that maybe gets down to six degrees in the middle of night, um, and they're saying this is the coldest they've ever been. So for me, it's almost like the first thing we say is we need a cultural norm that your home should be comfortable all year round. That is the biggest shift to me. Um, and I th and we're increasingly having people who live in homes, they might live in apartments for a few years that are actually better, and then they realise how unacceptable most of our building stock is. And the good news is, you know, I don't think we need to make every home in Australia like some you know, miracle of energy efficiency. I think they just need to get to a decent basic standard. So taking homes from completely terrible to a decent basic standard is actually quite affordable. Mm. So, I mean, this is what the International Energy Agency was really getting at um, for Australia. There is so much that we need to do to retrofit our current Australian homes. That's a lot of homes, though, isn't it? It is. I mean, and there's a huge amount of homes we need to retrofit for electrification. 
Uh, there's a huge amount we need to do for energy efficiency. Unfortunately, you know, this is the legacy of really not taking enough action in the last 10 to 20 years. Um, means we've got a lot more work to do in quite a short period of time. Mm. The good news is that if we do this stuff properly, it will make it easier and faster to, and, and cheaper to uh, electrify our homes and, and ensure that our system, our electricity grid moves to 100% renewables as quickly as possible. You've also highlighted that an important issue will be when our electric machines draw power from the grid. Uh, tell me why you think that is so important, because that, that goes to the issue of energy management, doesn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, energy efficiency, we, we think of it as a bit of a blamange term, right? Like, it's just like, oh, it's just this kind of generic thing that reduces energy demand. But actually, when you use appliances, unsurprisingly, determines what, how much you can save energy, right? Like, so if you're not using your heating in the middle of summer, you're not exactly going to benefit from heating efficiency in summer. So what you see is that certain appliances, um, so like, say, a fridge, they run 24-7. They use a little bit more energy in summer because they're pumping more, more heat to keep themselves cool inside. Um, but it's a fairly flat thing. So if you put in a more efficient fridge, it's going to pretty much just reduce your energy demand over the whole year. If you think about um, putting in, say, ceiling insulation, that's very specifically going to reduce heating demand in winter and cooling demand on the hot days in summer. So it's going to be having a very specific time print. That sounds very fancy, but it just means certain kinds of actions in your home are going to make a really big difference. So, for example, saving energy at a time when there's lots of solar being produced is not going to help very much at all. Whereas saving energy in the middle of winter or in the evening is really going to make a big difference for households and reduce the amount of batteries that they need and reduce the amount that they need to draw from the grid. Probably the, um, the and it's not just energy efficiency, because another thing that's really obvious is just simply moving your appliances from running at times when coal is plentiful. So a lot of hot water systems right now, they run in the middle of the night because that's when there's lots of excess energy from coal-fired plants, and so it's very cheap electricity at that time. But that's shifting, and we're already seeing that shift. So actually, it's much cheaper now. Electricity is much cheaper in the middle of the day. So shifting your hot water system from running uh, at night to the middle of the day maximizes your use of your solar and really reduces the amount of um, brown energy that you need to draw from the grid at times that's really stressing the grid. Uh, just going back to comparing Australian homes with, say, European homes, for instance, how important have some of the energy efficiency measures been in making European houses more comfortable to live in, as you say? Oh, yeah, dramatic impacts. I mean, energy efficiency improvements between, I think it was about 2020 and 2015, cut most Germans' energy bills by about 15, uh, sorry, about, by about 30%. So, and that's just in a fairly short period on top of homes that were already really efficient. So they've got a long history of having building standards in place. And it's not just in buildings. I mean, you can look at transport as well, you know, like um, the US and Europe pretty much had fuel efficiency standards in place for cars from the late 70s. And we are just considering it now. Um, we only had building efficiency standards, uh, quite low ones introduced nationally in 2005. So, you know, a good sort of uh, almost 30 years after Europe, 25 years after Europe. So we've got a lot of catch up to do. And it does make a dramatic difference. I mean, if you just spend time in a European house compared to an Australian home, um, the difference is, is instantly 
perceivable. I mean, to the extent that I had a German friend stay with me um, for about a week once, and I was away at work during the day, and my energy bill went up like 20 times for the week that he was here. <laughs> because he just assumed that the home should be warm all the time and had every single radiator on. And this is before I retrofitted the house. And so he just had the whole home permanently, like sort of feeling like it was about 25 degrees. Um, and yeah, just destroyed the energy bill for the house. Yeah. Uh, it was extraordinary. I've got this one spike on my data that you, just, you can attribute to him. So <laughs> I bet you tell him that often. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do. I, I, uh, he's never going to forget that. Um, but another way of putting it, and, and this is the one that blows my mind, is that in South Australia, um, there is 20% higher rate of mortality from hypothermia than Sweden. So this is a country that regularly gets down to minus 20 yes. um, versus a place that gets down to, I don't know, temperature in Adelaide in winter is really not that low. And I used to live there, so I can attest to the reality of this. But also in Sweden, if you die from hypothermia, you generally fell asleep drunk in the street in the snow, right? Or you went <laughs> ice fishing and you fell in. Whereas in Adelaide, if you die from hypothermia, you were generally in your own home, right? So it, it's actually a, a national tragedy. And so yes. you can see the difference in the building standards uh, in Australia, not just show up through, uh, you know, we've got some data on what's going on with internal temperatures, but actually showing up in people's death rates. And that's mm. pretty heartbreaking. Um, I mean, overall, so Australia's got like a double the overall rate of deaths associated with cold weather as Sweden. Um, so that's, that's pretty mind-blowing when you think about how mild our winters are, but our homes just provide almost no protection. And a recent study, I think, I'm trying to remember the data from the top of my head, but it's basically they, they took a sample of homes and they measured the temperature in inside. And I think it was something like about 70% of the time they were below the global health standards for inside the buildings. So, yeah, they're, they're more efficient in Europe, but more importantly, they're safer, they're healthier. And that, and that is, I think, for me, the thing that I've become more and more focused on, something we absolutely have to fix up. You, you raised the issue of uh, of ratings and standards and regulations that have been in place in Europe now for some time. How important do you think they have been? Those the mandatory mm. ratings, for instance, uh, how important have they been for bringing about comfortable homes? So I think that the first thing to talk about is, is just the minimum standards, which generally use rating systems uh, or similar approaches to do it. And, and minimum standards, like there's absolutely solid evidence about how much they've reduced energy use in Europe. And homes in Australia that are built after um, about 2006 um, are much more comfortable uh, in both, it's definitely in winter, um, than homes built before that that tend not to have insulation. In terms of ratings, ratings are really important tools because they give people a bit of a sense of, well, how well is my home performing? Um, am I doing okay? And I think a lot of people are quite shocked when they find out that you know the average home, existing home in Australia is going to probably rate about between 1.5 and 2.5 on a scale that goes from 0 to 10. Um, gives you a sense of just how bad your home is. And people don't realise that. They, they just kind of assume this is quite normal. They don't realise that they deserve a better home. Um, so ratings, I think they do a few things. One is that they tell people, well, how good is my current home? Secondly, when they go to buy a home, they get a sense of how well it's performing. And it's, it's very sort of hidden stuff if you don't know what you're looking for. Even most building inspectors don't know how to do this at the moment. 
uh, without a rating tool, get a sense of actually how efficient it is. And that gives you a sense of, well, how much am I going to have to spend to make this as a comfortable, renewable, aligned home? Gives you a bit of a sense. And then also you can use the same ratings for uh, minimum standards. You can use the same rating tools for things like minimum performance for rental homes. You can use the same rating tools for things like government incentives and grants. So you kind of go, okay, look, we'll, we'll give people an incentive if they improve the performance of this home from say you know, 1.5 to, to four stars or something like that. So they're very useful tools in terms of giving people a really clear direction of what they have to do to improve uh, the comfort and performance of their home. Now, the, what I will say is that the rating systems we have in Australia for commercial buildings are generally world's best practice because what they do is they measure actual energy use. The problem is you can't take that approach to homes uh, for a re bundle of reasons, which I can go into. Well, yes, please. And But fundamentally, every home is, is totally different, even if they're in the same street and they, they're built by the same developer. Well, they are, they are similar, but, you know, um, every home is a unique, precious butterfly, but they're also pretty similar in a lot of ways. Like if you have a home with no insulation and massive leaky, um, you know, aluminium frame single pane windows, I, I will guarantee you that that's going to be a miserable home um, compared to one that is, <laughs> is well insulated and it's got double glazing. So there are, rating tools are useful. There are limits on how accurate they are, but, but I, again, that's, that's okay. Like they're actually pretty good. It's like 80-20 rule, right? So some people are like, well, they're not perfectly accurate. So what's the use in them? No, but I, I can guarantee you a 1.5 star home is going to be miserable and a six star home is going to be pretty comfortable. People have spent years though, Rob, trying to get mandatory energy ratings for houses that are sold and rented so people can mm -hmm. get a much better idea of how energy efficient their home's going to be. But we're still not there. What difference do you think bringing in mandatory energy ratings will have? Great question. So if we start and we look at commercial buildings where we've got really good data, um, there was a rating system that was in place from about 1998 called Neighbours. I've actually been pushing for them to change the naming of the uh, commercial of the residential one, which is kind of called NatHers. I think it should be called Home and Away, so that we've got uh, <laughs> you've got Neighbours and Home and Away. Um, I think that would do very well in international politics. Um, but the so the the one for commercial buildings, Neighbours, that's been around since 1998. Then it became mandatory in 2010. There wasn't much of an impact. There was an impact, but it wasn't a huge impact um, when it was voluntary. But when it became mandatory to disclose this rating when you leased or rented an office over a certain size, in the last 10 years, the energy use per square meter in offices has fallen by pretty close to 50%, which is mind-blowing. Mm. And it's, it is genuinely mm. global best practice. And what's been really amazing about that is because it's a really good rating tool, uh, it's actually been very cheap to achieve that because it's more about uh, tweaking in the way that buildings operate rather than huge amounts of cash being spent on them. So we know that that, that works very well. Um, the evidence we've got for application in the residential space is um, because of a, um, a Greens Labour coalition that's often in place in, in Canberra, in the ACT, uh, in the Territory Government, they introduced um, ratings for homes when they are leased and sold around the same time, I think it was about 1997. And what that's done is you can see that Canberra is the only place in the country where new homes are built significantly above the minimum standard. And you see quite a good rate of retrofitting of existing homes. So you can you can genuinely see the impact that it's had in, in Canberra quite 
quite significantly. So yeah, it will definitely, I think there's, there's good confidence it will have an impact on the builder market. Uh, you're absolutely right. It was first agreed to, we got um, a bunch of ministers to agree to that 2009 that COAG signed off on it, Council of Australian Governments, where all the um, prime ministers and the premiers get together. They signed off that we would have a, a disclosure system in 2009, where ratings for homes were disclosed when they were sold. Well, it's 2023 and we're not there yet. Having said that, I think there's real momentum. The new government is really keen. Um, there's a lot of governments around the country that can see the need for this. I think people are understanding more and more the health impacts that this would have. Like, So it, even ignore the energy impacts of this, right? The, the, the health impacts we know are probably about 10 times the energy impacts of, of upgrading homes to a decent quality of, of standard. So they're seeing that data i think there's real momentum but there are it's not the most straightforward issue there's some there's some complicated things that need to be worked out but the good news is that's complicated things that governments need to work out and we think that they can do that quite quickly it's it's more like you know the dark arts of how you get a policy through multiple governments at the same time um but for households i think it's quite straightforward which is that hopefully within a few years when they go to buy uh, or lease at home, you'll start to see ratings on that home uh, when you go to buy advertised. Yeah, it's interesting that the major banks have been calling for a national standardised rating system to measure the energy efficiency of homes. I mean, I presume that that comes down to their credit risk associated with lending to borrowers living in inefficient homes? Uh, bingo, yeah. So I think there's a few things driving it. Um, Number one, if you've got a household that's got much lower energy bills, you can be really uh, more confident that they're going to be making their mortgage repayments, which is just a really good thing for a bank. And that means they can they can offer like lower interest rates to those households. Second thing is that banks see a real opportunity to provide people incentives for retrofits for their homes. So they can provide loans for people upgrading their homes to electrify them. But if they can electrify them and do the efficiency at the same time, make them more comfortable, increase the value of that home, reduce the bills, that's a really good thing for the bank. Obviously, it's a really good thing for the household. And sometimes the interests of households and banks surprisingly align. <laughs> the final thing I think is that banks have actually a lot of uh, increasingly, banks globally have, uh, it's really important for them to have what is a sustainable portfolio. So in other words, their loans are going towards more sustainable products. You're not financing coal, coal mines anymore, you're financing renewable energy products. Projects. If they have a confident rating around the sort of buildings that they are uh, providing finance for, so people's homes, but also office buildings, those kind of things, it gives them a lot more ability for them to be able to do reporting on that they've got a pretty clean, what we call asset sheet. So, you know, uh, all the things that they're providing money for are actually good things. So there's multiple motivations for why the banks actually want to support households in this, which is, you know, surprising. But um, the more I understand it, the more it makes sense. It, it does, but it has taken them quite a while, hasn't it, to come on board? Yeah, I think it, it's always taken people quite a while to realise what's in their best interest. You know, we've, we found this with the commercial building owners in sort of 2010, they initially opposed sort of mandatory ratings of, of, of office buildings when they were leased and mm. sold. Um, fast forward four years and they vehemently opposed, um, you know, uh, Tony Abbott's government removing the same rule because they realised how beneficial it was to the sector. So I think, you know, once people start to understand how this benefits 
not just households, but the bottom line, and you actually do have a, a bit of a marriage of ideals there, we see them changing pretty quickly. Mm. I'm also presuming that for people who want to finance an upgrade to their home, that energy ratings will be a great signal for the bank, won't they? Yeah, because the bank doesn't want to lend you money to, to do some things to the home that are quite expensive, but actually may not make much difference. So for example, in uh, I think double glazing is fantastic, but it's probably you know the, the the most expensive thing you can do to your home. They want to make sure that what the household's doing is actually going to have a big impact on its bill, because again, that'll that will support the repayment. And the household wants the same thing too. You know, you don't want to be spending lots of money on fancy bits of kit that don't actually reduce your bills. You want to have a home that's more comfortable and cheaper to run. And so the more a rating system can support you to identify what things you should be doing to a home, uh, the better. How else can energy ratings support the energy transition? I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the, the reliability of the grid, for instance. There, some of this is very, very well bedded down and some of this is still a bit of a work in progress. But ratings for homes do two things. So the first thing is your star rating for your home is basically saying, the envelope of the home, so the, the the walls, the ceilings, the insulation, the draft proofing, the glazing, how much energy is it going to require to heat and cool that building over the year? There's a second rating, though, called the whole of home rating, which is being brought in for new buildings and, and it's going to be start to sort of, um, they're, they're, they're working on it, application to existing homes, starts to tell you, well, what have you got in terms of on-site generation, batteries, how well is the design of your home lined up to your clean energy? How well is it lined up to using energy from the grid that is clean? Um, and that will really help households to understand how to um, maximise a clean home that is drawing off clean energy. One of the major issues in this big energy transition that we're all going through, obviously, is the cost of all the appliances which we are going to need. What's your view on how we make sure that we bring everybody with us, that that renters aren't counted out, that um, people on low incomes aren't counted out, people in remote communities, for instance? What would you recommend as the key things that we need to do to make sure that everybody comes with us? Great question. So the, the first thing is I think we need to be supporting the grid to go to zero emissions as quickly as possible. Solar produces energy every day in the middle of the day. Um, it produces less in winter than we'd ideally want. If you just have a system that's entirely solar, you have a problem. Like ideally you want a grid that's got a diversity of renewable energy sources. So you've got some solar, you've got some wind, you've probably got some offshore wind. It's also valuable as well having big solar farms um, because then you can have very large um, batteries next to them that provide a lot of grid services. So you kind of want a mix of types of generation and I think over relying on every single house having to have all of the energy needs that it meets on site is a much more expensive way and I, I think we we need to really make sure it was really important for, you know the grid is so brown at the moment that every bit of extra mm. solar on helps but we're going to hit a point fairly soon where solar is not going to be displacing much more solar on homes is not going to be displacing much more um coal and gas and actually making sure we've got as much wind as solar is going to be a really important goal. Don't get me wrong, we still need to put quite mm. a lot of solar out there. So making sure that the grid is as affordable as possible. So whether you've got on-site generation or you don't, whether you've got batteries on or not, you can still come along for that journey is really important. And 
we're already starting to see that happen now with the cost of buying energy in the middle of the day from the grid now dropping to really low levels for, for most of the year because there's so much solar. So there's basically, I guess my view is that let's move away from the sort of Ayn Rand model of clean energy towards <laughs> maybe a bit more of a community based one where we're sharing solar resources, um, we're sharing wind resources uh, amongst the community. That's going to be a really critical step. So I think that's a really fundamental one is, is you know, stop fussing about, you know, I don't know, making a system so that every person in a giant block of flats, there's a, they have a unit of solar allocated to them somewhere in Timbuktu. No, just the whole grid should be clean and affordable. The second thing I think is making sure that every single public housing unit in Australia, social housing, is good quality. Um, so that means making sure it's uh, got insulation, it's got all electric appliances, it's draft proofed. That is a really basic one that governments just need to spend the money on because it's their, it's their building stock. They own it and they need to make sure that that's upgraded. And it was really good to see the Australian government commit $300 million, which should be matched to about $600 million with the states and territories to upgrade public housing. It's a good first step. A lot more will need to be spent, mm. but that's a really good first step. Um, and I think minimum standards for rental homes, absolutely critical, right? Um, you know, my girlfriend uh, rents a home that is, it doesn't have a heater at the moment, right? And it's um, in Melbourne. That is ridiculous. That that should be, I mean, it is now technically illegal, but that should be around the country. You should have to have... Uh, a good air conditioning or heating system. You should have ceiling insulation as an absolute bare minimum for all homes in Australia. And eventually we want to move towards better standards. And then on top of that, obviously, making sure that we have our energy efficiency schemes, which are in place in a number of states and territories, making sure that that's supporting lower income households to be able to afford to electrify their homes and to do the complementary measures of insulation and draft proofing at the same time. Those are probably the key measures. I mean, I understand what you're saying in terms of making sure that we think a little bit more community-minded about our energy. But one of the advantages of having rooftop solar is that it, it's actually a decentralised model, what they're calling a decentralised model of energy. And what we've had to date has been a centralised model where big companies actually control our energy and our power supply. One of the problems, I suppose, of relying on the, the centralised model as we move to renewables is that it's still the utilities that are going to have control. And let's face it, there's a lot of distrust when it comes to dealing with utilities. Those are great points, Anne. The challenge, I think, is if, if, if you just look at it as basic technical equipment, right, your ideal energy system's got a mix of wind, it's got a mix of solar, it's got some large-scale storage because that's much cheaper per unit of storage than, than having it in every home. Um, in an ideal world, you'd have a mix of distributed resources, so solar that's out there, and some large-scale stuff. And on a basic level, um, you just that's because micro wind, uh, to want a better word, is bullshit. Right? Like it, It's not something that really works and pays itself back in an energy sense, let alone in an economic sense. So if you want wind in the system, we have to accept some level of grid sources. And there's a lot of research on this that just shows the most reliable, cheapest renewable system is a combination of solar, wind, and some of it distributed and some of it centralized. So I think what's happened is, is that people have gone fully decentralized because of how dirty the grid was and how little they trusted the utilities. And I think may totally understand why. We're now hitting a point where the next bit is quite challenging. So it's like that last 20 to 30% of emissions gets quite hard and quite expensive to reduce if we don't start thinking in a coordinated way. 
So this is absolutely not saying don't decentralize. I think people should put solar in their homes. I think it's great. Um, but trying to make sure that every single, you know, kilowatt hour of energy that you use came from your roof rather than a mix of most of it comes from your roof, you're getting some wind from the grid, um, you're sharing some of your solar with your neighbours, they're sharing some of it when they've got excess. It's very hard. It, it's a lot more expensive if we do it through that sort of, you know, the fully sort of like and Randy and environmentalist kind of way to try and solve it. And that's a hyper-individualist. Hyper so I think the challenge is on a really basic level of technically and environmentally, what is the best solution? It's a mix of resources from a, uh, I think, a community perspective the best thing is a mix of resources of centralized and decentralized because that's going to deliver us the cheapest energy system which means one we maintain the political permission to do the energy transition because we've got cheap reliable energy and if we don't have cheap and reliable energy then the, the politics get pretty horrible pretty fast as we've seen before um, but two we're going to leave a lot of people behind and i think that's a real problem um, the solutions that involve every single person spending a huge amount on, on resources on their own house is kind of reminds me, I guess, a lot of the 1950s and 60s when it was like, you know, everyone was going to have their own car and be completely liberated individual people and how fantastic is that? And then, you know, fast forward 50 years and you're stuck in traffic on Collins Street, right? So mm. the thing that works for the individual at the beginning, once you start to move to a system, starts to look different. And so the real challenge, I think, is the one that you really laid out there, which is how do we get to a system where people trust the regulators and they trust the utilities in their best interests so that they're willing to do this as a bit more of a community? And I think that's really essential that we get there. It is interesting that even though the perspective that you've just outlined is a little bit different to, say, some of the communities who want to electrify their whole community, you're still outlining a community perspective. It's not. It's not necessarily a uh, a, a perspective that is is totally in favour of the utility. It, it's interesting how that dovetails with some of the other organisations and community organisations, which are are really pushing a decentralised model of um, of power. The differences are fairly, fairly nuanced, right? Because I believe that everything we we need to electrify every home, and we need to bring everyone with us. I think we need to be putting a lot more distributed energy resources out there. But that last bit of energy does get quite hard to solve without larger scale solutions. And my view, I guess, is it's a bit like, do we, do we give up on being able to make sure that the energy system serves the community uh, and therefore say we should do it all ourselves because we just don't trust the system to do it? Or do we try and make the system deliver for the community? And I think that's... It's a really nuanced point um, because, as I said, I think I think kind of 95% actually, I'm 100% aligned with those kind of movements of electrify whole suburbs and make sure there's more community resources there. I used to work in water policy and you sort of see some of the same things there, which is that like mega dams, there are problems with environmental problems, but you need some of them. Water tanks on homes within cities, small water tanks, depending on your climate zone, and I'm going to get really technical here, don't always actually deliver as much benefit as you'd think. But it's that sort of mid-scale community-based solution that is the real winner, right? So um, what is called Water Sustainable Urban Design, right? So it, it's, um, it's got a beautiful acronym of WUSD, right? So it's kind of like 
you're thinking on all three scales together. Um, it's the middle. It's often that missing middle scale of technology that's ignored. So we're very good at doing the distributed stuff on people's homes. We're generally the system's already set up to do the centralized stuff. The missing bit is that sort of middle scale community resource and how those three link together properly. And I think that's the balance that that's going to be the challenge. Um, uh, again, I, I'm not. I don't think I'm really disagreeing with the other advocates out there. It's just maybe I'm highlighting the complexities. Um, a little bit more because my brain tries to work out what the problems are so that we can fix them. So just a, a final question, I'm going to get you to sum up a little bit, Rob. As we electrify everything, what is the, 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 the key thing that you want to see happen with that electrification in terms of, of, of how we do it? So... I think there's a few questions about how we electrify as we go forward. The first is we really want to make sure that um, we're doing some kinds of, of electrification really need to be done in a way that's um, as efficient as possible to make sure that that's complementing a renewable energy system. So, for example, you're putting in an efficient air conditioner of heating and cooling. You're, if a home doesn't have any, you know, has very poor ceiling insulation, we make sure that all homes have got a basic level of ceiling insulation. And you do those two together, you're going to be having a dramatic reduction in the amount of electricity we need in the middle of winter when there's a lot less output from solar panels. So that's, that's I guess, one part. The second, again, is, is thinking much more about how we solve this as a community and not putting all the heavy work onto individual households to, um, you know, become perfect saints. Rather, we have a system that is set up to make it easy. Some of this is going to be quite complicated. There are, there are areas where we have quite poor housing stock, and to electrify that will actually require wiring upgrades and thinking of that as a street or a part of a grid that we're upgrading um, i think is probably going to make a lot more sense than expecting every single household to you know cut the connection themselves and potentially do some quite substantial wiring upgrades because sometimes you need quite big ones to move to induction cooking thinking through those issues and thinking a bit more collectively about this I think is the way to go. So I think we really needed those environmental pioneers making sure that their homes individually were perfect and having to do it, frankly, in the face of an energy system that was um, uh, indifferent or maybe outright hostile towards that kind of approach. We really need to get back into thinking of this as a community-solved problem and solving it together to make sure we bring everyone with us. Yeah. Rob Murray-Leach, thanks so much for joining the Switched On podcast. Thanks so much, Anne. Great to talk. And Rob Murray-Leach is the Head of Market Transformation for the Energy Efficiency Council. That's a wrap for the podcast for today. Next time on the Switched On podcast, we are going to turn on the lights, the LED lights. I'm Anne Delaney. See you then. <laughs>